Hey everybody, welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And Ed, hello. Today we have a lot to talk about, so um, we're going to have to get right to it. Hello. Hi, how are you? Great, let's get to it. Um, Ed, the... uh, there's a lot happening in the news right now, and that's what we talk about is the life of the church in the news. And what I want to start with, of course, is the death of Cardinal uh, George Pell. Longtime listeners uh, to this um, to this show and to our previous podcast at which I sat at my desk. I was an editor then, as I am now, and I sat at my desk. At any rate, longtime listeners to us in the podcasting milieu will recall that several years ago, at some point during the um, during the trial and, and uh, appeal process of, of Cardinal George Pell, you and I did about an hour and a half show in which we walked very, very carefully through all of the facts and details regarding um, the allegations of sexual abuse which Cardinal Pell, Cardinal Pell faced, was uh, convicted of in Australia, and then ultimately was acquitted of um, by Australia's high court. We, we spent a, a, quite a while kind of walking through the whole of, of the allegations. It, it, the reason we did that is because we wanted really to allow listeners to hear all of the uh, all of the facts we have been reporting on this stuff uh, a great deal we wanted listeners to be able to hear all of the facts and then to be able to make up their own mind with our sort of um just uh step by step and point by point sort of walk through what was known and what was not known we're not going to do that same thing again today but i do want to give listeners kind of an overview of both the life of Cardinal Pell and also the allegations which he faced and the way he handled them. And I want to do that in a way that really, listeners, I mean, I really do want you to make up your own mind about that. I think Ed and I probably each have our own views on it. But very honestly, look, we cover clerical sexual abuse and misconduct with regularity, and we aim to do that um, in an unbiased way. That means we aim to sort of lay out the facts in the way that we're able to lay out the facts and um, and, and only do that when we're covering something. And I, I would like us to at least give a kind of factual accounting of some of the more controversial elements of Cardinal Pell, because, of course, Pell died uh, this week, and there has been, in the media, a great deal of um, of commentary and, um, and other synthesis of his life, which I think are not being very careful with the facts, and I think it would behoove us and the Church to to do otherwise. Does that sound fine to you, Ed? Uh, it does. I'm, I, I want to register up front a certain regret that that is necessary. I, you are right that we cover um, issues of abuse and allegations of abuse in the church and um, it's by a big and around part of what we do. It is a big part of what we do. But I also feel strongly that the purpose of investigations, judicial proceedings, things like that is to provide a definitive result. And in Cardinal Pell's case, he was exonerated by the highest court in his country who found that his original conviction should be vacated and, and commented that no jury acting rationally would have convicted him. So it, it seems to me fundamentally unjust to his memory that so much of the coverage of, uh, of his life following his death has, you know, led with, well, of course he, he was put on trial for, for sexual abuse. And it's, it was a crime that he was found not to have committed. So it seems it, un, it seems uh, it puts a question of justice around, around that coverage for me about, you know, to, to indelibly link the life and legacy of a man who did so much, um, to something he didn't do seems unfair. But again, as you say, there's there's been so much of an effort to sort of rehash and rake over um, those accusations that it does seem like it's necessary to provide some clarity on the facts. Yeah, I, 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 want, I would like to talk about the, the whole of the life and legacy of Cardinal Pell. But in order to do so, I think, you know, I don't want to talk about it without without addressing this element of his life, both the allegations he faced, the allegations he faced, faced both about abuse personally and the allegations he faced about his handling of abuse as, uh, as, as a person in ecclesiastical leadership position. So I do want to talk about those things in part because, um, well, in part because I think it matters and I think people should know what the facts are, um, but also um, because after having done that, I think it's a little bit easier to talk about sort of the, the, other, the other things about his life that are relevant to, to him as a churchman. Sure. Does that sound fair? Yeah. Okay. So, Ed, just very cursorily, um, Cardinal Pell um, was uh, was ordained in, I want to say, 1966, a priest of the Diocese of Ballarat, Australia, which is somewhere in Australia. Do you know where Ballarat is? Ed? I believe it's um, in the in the metropolitan province of Melbourne. I think it's in the metropolitan province of Melbourne as well, which, if you're an American listener, is somewhere in Australia. We can't be expected to know Australian ge- geography. Let's, who are we kidding? Uh, Melbourne is somewhere in Australia. I think it's where um, the band Silverchair came from. And uh, Cardinal Pell, is, in as much as I know, was ordained a priest for suburban Melbourne in 1966. 
I believe he did, spent some time studying in Rome. He had the kind of assignments that a young priest has. And uh, eventually... He, he studied became, in Rome and the UK. He had a doctor from Cambridge, as I recall. That's right. That's right. Correct. Yes. Eventually, he became uh, a member of the, the archdiocesan leader, the, the, a curial official, um, namely, effectively, the Episcopal Vicar for Education. Um, and, uh, and eventually, in 19... I want to say 86. Is that right? Or 87? I think it was 87, but yeah. 87 was um, was consecrated an auxiliary bishop of the Archdiocese of Melbourne. He served as uh, he served first as an auxiliary bishop of Melbourne, then became um, bishop of. Was he immediately the Archbishop of Melbourne, or did he have a diocese before? No, no, he was he was straight in in Melbourne. Yeah, immediately. That's thank you. We we should have we should be looking at a biography instead of pulling from our memory. But our memory is actually quite fine. So became Archbishop of Melbourne, and then subsequently became Archbishop of Sydney. After he served as the Archbishop of Sydney, Australia, which, if Finding Nemo has taught me anything, is a city with a lot of dentists' offices and possibly the capital, uh, he was appointed by Pope Francis to serve as the first prefect of the uh, Vatican Secretariat for the Economy, which was charged with um, overseeing the the, uh, the Franciscan reforms of the Roman Curia, if you will, the reforms that Pope Francis wished to initiate in the Roman Curia with regard to financial administration and governance. We will talk a great deal about that, but first, uh, let's talk about the criminal accusations against Cardinal Pell and how they proceeded. So as as near as I can remember, um, the criminal process against Cardinal George Pell actually began in 2013 when local police in the Australian state of Victoria, where the Archdiocese of Melbourne is, uh, opened basically a fishing expedition into him. I mean, I don't know how else to describe it. I know fishing expedition is, is, a, is a pejorative term, but I mean, it was an open-ended investigation into possible crimes by Cardinal Pell. But there was, at the time the investigation was opened, no accusations against him, no evidence of criminal activity, um, no alleged victims had come forward. It was just sua sponte by the police. They said, we're just going to take a good hard look at this guy and see what we can find. Um, and they didn't find anything, as near as I can tell, for several years, although they did um, discuss at a very high level, senior officers in the police force were discovered um, by secular media in Australia. By secular media in Australia, uh, in 2014, there were you know emails. They basically at the time in 2014 there was a massive scandal surrounding the the Victoria Police Force because they got caught up in a in a big um, mafia informant scandal. Uh, Witness X, it was called. You can look it up and read all the gory details. But the bottom line was the police in in Victoria behaved incredibly, incredibly badly. And they were under a lot of pressure, and they were facing a lot of media criticism. And in the midst of that, there were some emails that went back and forth between various members of the police saying, well, you know, if we were to get something on Pell, it would probably move all this other stuff off the headlines. Exactly. And that's not us. That's reported in secular media with receipts in Australia, correct? Co- uh, correct. I, 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 secular media in Australia reported I also reported it at the time in a different place. Um, yeah. So, the, I mean, we... We we know that. Let us say the the intentionality. That the police investigation began is a very very broad investigation into yes. Cardinal Pell, and that police expressed among themselves in a documented manner a desi- a recognition that the implication of Cardinal Pell would be otherwise good for the problems that they were facing. Exactly, and after two years, they hadn't um, found anything, so they did what you know any 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 good and honest and upright um, civilian police force would do, having had a two-year investigation into a, a citizen with turning up no evidence and subject to no accusations, uh, they added more money and put it on a more substantial footing and upped the game. And it culminated in um, criminal charges being brought against him in 2016. The trial began in 2017. And the substance of the accusations that Pell faced was that in his first weeks, months, as Archbishop of Melbourne, he, after... <laughs> This is in 1996. The the police and the prosecutors identified a, a window of some months when this might have happened. But they said after the 10.30 a.m. Sunday Mass at the cathedral, at which then Archbishop Pell was the principal celebrant, um, immediately following Mass, he physically assaulted and restrained two teenage members of the cathedral choir and... I apologize for the the, the use of graphic that words he here. He took but... them into the sacristy, and and uh, while he was fully vested, wearing wearing mitre and holding crozier, both um, uh, um, compelled Albstol, them to drink wine. Albstol, the whole the whole vestiture, um, both compelled them to drink wine and compelled them to perform oral sex upon him. Uh, yes, that he basically somehow fully vested um, immediately I mean, after mass. Right? That was the allegation that he that he physically restrained two teenage boys and raped them. Um, 
the, this this was the substance of the allegation. Now, it is worth noting that although there were two uh, alleged victims of this attack, only one of them uh, came forward to accuse Cardinal Pell. His name is still not able to be disclosed in public. The other one had died in 2014, uh, but I, I would argue, importantly, before his death, he had on more than one occasion said to his mother that he was not abused by anyone, in fact. Because his mother had had some concerns about him and had asked if he had been abused by anyone, yes. and he had told her that he had not been abused by anyone. Yes. Um, but nevertheless, okay. the the second supposed victim came forward and, and mounted criminal accusations on behalf of them both. So Cardinal Poe was first interviewed in 2016 in Rome about all of this. Um, the police came to Rome. I bet they expensed all that a little bit. Police came to Rome, interviewed Cardinal Pell a little bit, and then charges were brought against him in 2017, for which he returned from Rome. He he took a leave of absence from his job in the Roman Curia, returned from Rome in order to face trial. Yes. The yes. trial was subject to a gag order. The reason the trial was subject to a gag order, well, Australian courts are just different than we are. Australian society is different than American society. There's no First Amendment. The, the, there are a great many sort of restrictions on the activity of the press. There were also considerations of bringing other charges against Cardinal Pell, other criminal charges related to other allegations. Is that right, Ed? Uh, yes, there were some there were some moves to bring charges against uh, Cardinal Pell related to other accusations um, about his time as a priest in Ballarat. Although those um, that prosecution never went forward, those charges were dropped. That had uh, to do with the notion that when he was that when he was swimming with some young men as a young priest, he was like swimming with some boys of the of the um, of the parish as a young priest, and that he allegedly the allegation is that he allegedly might have touched one of them through his bathing suit in a in a pool of people was that the was that the allegation that he didn't face criminal charges for yes the charges that he did end up facing regarding the the alleged assault in in melbourne cathedral was subject to i mean the whole judicial process um, was subject to a sweeping gag order which is which is not uncommon in both australia particularly in um, victoria uh, but also in other jurisdictions that share a sort of english common law heritage in the uk it's very normal for there to be gag orders that prevent the reporting on trials while they are underway, although it was especially draconian in Pell's case. And there was also, there there has been concern expressed for a number of years, both at the time of Pell's trial, subsequent to that, and before, that basically there was such a level of cultural animus to the Catholic Church and the leadership of the Catholic Church and Catholic bishops in particular over historical clerical sexual abuse scandals that there was widespread concern that basically a Catholic bishop in Australia couldn't get a fair trial. And this was specifically flagged in Pell's case before the gag order was brought in. And Victoria is actually one of the few jurisdictions in Australia where you can't get a bench trial in sensitive, high-profile cases like this, which for anyone who doesn't know, um, in, in many jurisdictions you can. If there's concern that you can't get a clean jury pool to draw from, you can basically say, well, the judge will try the case. The judge will be the jury. And, I mean, you can't impose that on the defendant. You have to, you know, it has to be a negotiation. It has to be agreed by all parties. But... um that was that was not an option in Pell's case. They, you still had to have a jury trial, even though there were concerns about you know a widespread and national media campaign to get Pell um, coordinated by journalists working for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation for a number of years. So you know you can make your own mind up whether or not you'd be comfortable getting a fair shake from a jury in those circumstances. But anyway, the the case went to trial despite the gag order. Some outlets and some journalists you and I included, um, reported on what was going on in the trial anyway, because we don't live we in did. Australia. We and found a way to geofence it from Australia because we didn't want, we were warned by an Australian court that when we started reporting on it, we were warned by an Australian court that we'd be held in contempt. And um, we had, while we were personally fine with that, we had some uh, considerations because at that time we had employers and our employers did not want us to be held in contempt because of the potential implications of that for them. So we found a way in which our reporting could be geofenced so that it could be broadcast to every part of the world. But about Australia. I found it ironic because normally you have to get a criminal conviction to go to Australia, whereas they were saying if you carry this up, you <laughs> won't be able to go to Australia because of criminal action. But well, we were warned by the judge to knock it off, but we didn't knock it off. We just, um, we knocked it off. In no, Australia. we didn't knock it off. Anyway, we reported uh, at the time the, the, the evidence that was being presented against Pell in court, which consisted exclusively of the narrative of this one alleged victim accuser. That, that was it. There was his narrative. And that was it. And because of how um, how the judge instructed the case, um, it was not possible, it was not permitted for the defense team to basically cross-examine 
the the accuser um, in any way which might impugn his character or credibility as a witness, which strikes me as a serious handicap to mounting a credible defense. But that that was the field on which Cardinal Pell's legal team were playing. Um, what they did do was they provided upwards of 20 corroborating witnesses saying Pell was clearly visible after the masses in, in question when this was alleged to have taken place. It only was alleged to have taken place once, but they, there was no firm date given. There was a window in time. It was, it was you know, after a 1030 Sunday mass in between the months of, I think it was um, August and December of 1996. And they looked and it turned out Pell had only celebrated two masses during that time. So it only could have been one of two, two Sundays, right? Right. They could provide publicly available proof that Pell only celebrated the 1030 Mass in the cathedral twice during that period of time because the cathedral was under renovation and he was the new archbishop. So he was touring around parishes as a sort of, you know, I'm the new archbishop. Hi, how are you? So there were only these two Masses at which it could have taken place. And they produced 20 plus witnesses saying, no, I saw Cardinal Pell on one of the weeks outside the cathedral steps immediately after mass. He didn't go into the sacristy. He was there on the front steps greeting people. There are pictures there, you know, as he always did. I shook hands. The idea. Yeah. Um, and on both the Sundays in question, they, the defense showed that actually the, the choir, um, went immediately from the celebration of mass to record a Christmas concert. So there was no opportunity for two of the two altos, to be waylaid in the sacristy by the archbishop and kept there for a period of time. They would, their absence would have been immediately noted. They went from A to B. They didn't like go into the sacristy and get changed. And then, you know, it was, they, they just didn't stop at all. So there was that as well. Um, there was also the physical evidence of the, of the layout of the cathedral, which I believe the jury was taken to, which is basically open plan. There's no door that could be locked. There's tons of entrances and exits. It's a big open plan place. And it is, as multiple witnesses testified, the absolute most crowded and busiest place in the cathedral immediately following the 1030 Mass with the Archbishop on a Sunday. Um, That's its busiest time. There were people in and out of there. Everyone was there. You know, there was, in a sense, no no means or opportunity for what Pell was accused of. Um, And they also pointed out, somewhat ad nauseum, that uh, there was th- that there was no no obvious motivation that there was no um, you know that as as Pell's um, defense lawyer argued in court only a madman would attempt to do what Pell was alleged to have attempted to do which is basically to attempt to physically restrain two teenage boys you know not we're not talking about small children we're talking about teenage boys attempt to physically restrain two teenage boys rape them in an open plan room with people coming in and out of it. Like you would have to be literally psychotic to attempt this. And the judge to his credit (laughs) accepted that there was no evidence that Pell was insane. um, And you would have to be insane to do this, but nevertheless uh, he was eventually convicted. He was in fact convicted on the second time of asking the initial trial, which lasted some months returned as we reported at the time. In fact, I think we are still the only people to have reported this. Um, again, I believe so. because of gag order restrictions and things like that, that the the original jury that Pell faced deadlocked ten to two in his favor. Um, and right. in the view of the deadlock, they declared a mistrial. But it needed to have a unanimous thing, so it was a yeah. it was a hung jury. Or... Yeah, it was declared a mistrial, and so they convened a new jury. And in a matter of weeks, they unanimously returned a conviction. They then followed an appeal process to the Supreme Court of Victoria, which upheld uh, before a panel of three judges. Uh, the conviction by a margin of two to one, but he was granted leave to appeal to Australia's high court, where finally in 2020, having spent 404 days in solitary confinement uh, as as part of his prison sentence following his conviction, um, the, the, the high court of Australia overturned his conviction, exonerated him and said that any jury acting rationally would not have convicted him on the evidence presented. Right, that the evidence would have given any jury a rational doubt, a, a, you know, or any jury acting rationally a doubt as to the veracity of the allegations. Right. And I mean, the, the, the entire thing was something of an international spectacle and scandal, despite the fact that you couldn't actually talk about it legally. Um, because once news of Pell's conviction got out, and was reported on internationally, and the and the evidence or lack thereof uh, was was sort of presented internationally, and the appeals process started, and and things like that. It became a, ser- a serious point of contention that you know, in a sense, the credibility of the Australian judicial system 
was was now on, in question because of Pell's trial. Because and this you had um, you know law professors in Oxford, I think, who were you know former judges and mentors and teachers of members of the appeals court that were um, that upheld Pell's conviction were writing in to say you know this is madness. You can't take the uncorroborated word of a single accuser and convict someone in, as a general premise, let alone in the face of overwhelming contrary evidence this is this is madness this is hysteria and lawyers in australia lawyers and politicians in australia who who had been spent you know decades criticizing cardinal pell's positions on every thing because they don't agree with the positions of the church were making those same points so there were a lot of op-eds in like australian newspapers from very prominent people who disagreed with pell saying precisely that you know that this is a matter of the credibility of our justice system at, at the time it got to the to the high court yeah and I mean, in, in case, and it wasn't just about Pell. I mean, going back to what I was saying earlier about there having been a sort of, you know, anti-Catholic fever more widely in, in Australia and in Australian media uh, at this time. I mean, it was real. So um, what happened was the week before Pell was convicted in his, not his first trial, in his second trial, but his first result, you know, after the jury deadlock, um, the week before that verdict was delivered, uh, another Australian court overturned the conviction of Another archbishop, the Archbishop of Adelaide, or rather the the former arch, the emeritus Archbishop of Adelaide at that point, Philip Wilson, who'd been charged and convicted of failing to report clerical sexual abuse in his archdiocese, and the judge in his decision in that case overturning the conviction basically said this guy was, as far as I can see, convicted for the crime of being a Catholic bishop. When we're not very fond of Catholic bishops because of the institutional sins of the Catholic Church, and that ain't cool. Um, he wrote this. You know, the judge was, I think. Royalis is his name, uh, wrote something to the effect of that um, media pressure on the court to reach a given conclusion in this case, uh, in line with public opinion, was a was a real thing, and it, you know that that impedes justice being done. Um, hang on, there was a quote he said that I I want to um, find. Oh, here it is: the potential for media pr- media pressure to impact judicial independence may be subtle or indeed subversive in the sense that it's the elephant in the room that no one sees or acknowledges or wants to acknowledge. But it is not for me to punish the Catholic Church for its institutional moral deficits, nor to publish Archbishop Philip Wilson simply on the basis that he's a Catholic priest. And and his conviction was overturned. Like This is the atmosphere in which Pell was convicted, that there were bishops being convicted in courts and having their convictions overturned, with the judges saying, we've got an anti-Catholic bishop witch hunt going on in sections of our society. That that was the reality in Australia at the time. I mean, I, you could argue it's probably still the reality in Australia right now. I mean, it's not an easy place to be a Catholic bishop, that's for sure. It's worth talking about why. I mean, so Australia had, uh, in the years which preceded Pell's, the allegations against Pell, uh, you know, starting, uh, or at least reaching a sort of zenith in the, in the early in, um, 2000s and into the 2010s, uh, a clerical sexual abuse crisis, which I think in many ways, was was more profound even than that which first visited the United States in 2002. I mean, the media reports about what kinds of things were done in schools run by religious institutes are um, appalling, profoundly appalling. Yeah, it, it, was, really... it was closer to the experience of Ireland than the United States, where the church had um, a really large and long historical footprint at an institutional level, whether it was schools, orphanages, um, uh, things of that nature. And not just in like ancient history either, but... In relatively recent decades, the Church in Australia has had very serious allegations to grapple with. In fact, I mean, it's the fact of the matter is it's not only in the sort of faraway past because Pell himself um, lived with uh, – did he live with the Melbourne priest who was one of the most notorious abusers in Australian history? Uh, he was – I think he was a Ballarat priest, yeah, Gerald Ridsdale. That's right, and yeah. That's right. I mean, to say I – mean, yeah, he – it's not like they were roommates or something. They They lived in a seminary building together when they were priests for a year. Um, and I mean, Ridsdale, I mean, is a monster. He's, he's still in prison now and I'm sure will end up dying in prison. I think he's, we've now, I I think he's, it's estimated he has like 130 victims that he was abusing in, um, in the diocese. And, you know, Pell has, Pell got a lot of flack for, um, in the early nineties when Ridsdale was first charged and arrested with sort of the first batch of allegations against him and he pled guilty and uh pell accompanied pell, the pell was an, uh, an auxiliary bishop at the time and he was asked by ridsdale's lawyers to accompany him to court for his sentencing and to sort of you know do a 
you know, uh, an otherwise, you know, this person has some redeeming qualities statement to the court. And, you know, Pell said at the time that, you know, I'm not in any way minimizing what this guy has you know, pled guilty to or what he's done. I'm just here to say I I knew him. I, I, you know, I didn't know him to be a wholly bad person. I didn't know he had done these things, you know, and, and he said subsequently, because there was this picture of him walking into court with Ridsdale. And he said subsequently, he had no idea how that was going to be interpreted and played and, you know, wishes he hadn't done it and all of that. And, you know, it, it's true what Pell subsequently said, which is, I had no idea at the time the scope of Ridsdale's crimes. No one did. Ridsdale had pled guilty to this this first round of offenses and got a 12-month prison sentence. So, I mean, that gives you an idea of, you know, it's not to say he hadn't done something appalling, but, you know, even the Australian court system only gave him 12 months. And then while he was doing that 12-month hitch, the the rest of the allegations started coming out, and it was trial after trial after trial, and the full scope of what this guy had been up to came out. And so, you know, that that picture, that image of him walking into court with, you know, what is the most notorious clerical abuser in Australian history uh, definitely was, you know, part of the narrative of, you know, well, Pell is the face of the clerical abuse scandal in Australia. Yeah. So, so that became the narrative, so much so that the Royal Commission – um, which was kind of this uh, this official government sort of independent investigation of sexual abuse in the, in in Australia said that Pell at various times should have acted against abusers not not finding again personal culpability for him for abuse but said that at various times uh, in early in his ministry while an auxiliary bishop um, or before while he was a member of the diocesan college of consultors that he failed to act when he might have had occasion to or when he might have had information about about clerical abusers. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the one of the findings of the of the Royal Commission, which was redacted at the time of its original publication because Pell's case was ongoing, um, and then they subsequently published it after the High Court exonerated Pell, uh, said basically he should have known that they believe he he would have known he should have known he should have done something about Ridsdale as the Vicar General for Education and a member of the Presbyteral Council in Ballarat. And what Pell said is that conclusion just doesn't stack up with the facts, and it's not just a question of. Pell saying he didn't know anything about Ridsdale. I mean, he, Pell was very forthright in the three sessions that he gave before the Royal Commission of saying the Bishop Mulcairns of Ballarat at the time. He, said, he didn't tell us anything, and he in was fact, a disaster. He was and he said he was a disaster for victims in the life of the church. Yes. I mean, he Pell was scathing about the the, the then Bishop of Ballarat um, uh, during Ridsdale's time in, in ministry when he was, was committing all of these abuses. And Pell also pointed out, and I think reasonably so, that the Royal Commission had called other members of the Presbyteral Council for Ballard at the time, and they all said the same thing, which was, you know, we didn't know. The bishop didn't tell us anything. Yeah, he moved him from assignment to assignment to assignment in a way reminiscent of the worst successes of Boston or L.A. in the sort of spotlight scandals. He said, but that doesn't mean he told us why he was being moved. We just knew the guy was being moved. And, you know, I... I on the one hand, I understand why for someone outside of the church for something like the Royal Commission to be approaching the institution of something like a presbyteral council and to see on paper what it is supposed to do, that the assumption would be, well, of course you knew. You had to know. But, you know, if you have any experience with how dioceses work, with how dioceses and chanceries work, to say that, well, you're on the presbyteral council, you must have known everything that was going on is, I mean, it just, it's not true. Even in situations where there aren't catastrophic, horrible things going on in the background, even just sort of in the ordinary run of governance, there are things that bishops won't tell their presbyteral councils. There are things they won't tell their priest vicar for education that are going on, you know, other things. I mean, that's that's just not how it runs. Maybe it should be how it runs, but it's not. Now, let's talk about how we're talking about Pell right now, because what, we're, what I said I wanted to do at the beginning was to lay out the facts. And... I think we have laid out the facts about how Pell became, how Pell was both convicted and acquitted for his own, you know, sexual abuse um, allegations, and also why the Royal Commission said that Pell was um, insufficiently engaged on allegations during his time in diocesan administration. But I think the pushback to this would be, in fact, I've seen it. The pushback to our presentation of it would be, well, yeah, that's because you agree with him theologically or ideologically, and. Um, and you guys are uh, are offering a kind of apology of Pell, but if he were, if you didn't agree with him theologically or ideologically, you'd probably be much harder on him in light of the fact pattern that that you've laid out. What what should we say about that, Ed? What, how ought we to? I, I ha have people really said that about specifically yeah, our not our... specifically about us specifically, oh. but that tends to be when I, when I see a defense of Pell or when I see people, which what we've tried to do is lay out the facts, and I've sort of said that. But when we when I see a defense of Pell or when I see people sort of. Um, 
uh, lay one out, I usually see subsequent to that a set of comments that says, oh, that's because he's your guy. You guys, you know, and, and the criticism for us could be, well, you guys are pretty regularly hard on, I mean, you, you guys do a lot of investigation about um, uh, clerics accused of um, either negligence in office or um, misconduct themselves, sexual misconduct themselves, and uh, and you're being you're giving Pell more of the benefit of the doubt than you ordinarily give people. I don't think that that's true, actually. I think we're just sort of laying out what's I'm not been giving Pell more than the ordinary benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I'm giving so him either. my dispassionate sort of... weighing up of the facts as I have them, and I like to think I'm pretty well informed about this. I mean, as for, again, I, I haven't seen someone say this to us, but if they did say to us, well, it's because he's your guy, I would say they're stupid because... <laughs> No, point to me anywhere in any of the coverage we have ever done where it's like, oh, well, this guy's a quote unquote conservative. So we're going to solve it. We have no team. Like we are famous for that. Well, I mean, we have opinions in the life of it. We like to say that we have no team. My point is we've never carried water for anyone. Because someone who we agree with, I think, but but it's also true that someone we agree with, we have no problem sort of lighting them up if they ought to be lit up. Look, I I think it would be fair to say the, the story that we have published in our recent past that has attracted the most criticism towards us personally was not the subject of that was not what I would call an ideological liberal. And no, I don't want to, I don't want to rake that all over, but let's just say it, it does not comport with any reading of our coverage to say, Oh, well these guys go after libs and not cons. Like that's, it's not true. I've, I've had quite a few conservatives, very, very, very angry at us um, over the yeah, years. No, it's and, true. I'm- you know, that's fine. I tell them what I tell Anyone else who says, you know, hey, why are you doing this? Because we don't have a tribe. We don't have a team. We don't have a guy. If you are doing something like this, you're not on our team. Yeah, I try. I like to think that my friends are the ones who do the will of God. With that said, let's talk about what kind of – let's talk about sort of – because we're just talking about Cardinal Pell and we didn't want to talk about him only in the context of clerical sexual abuse. Let's talk about what kind of a person he was, what kind of impact he has on the life of the church. And then where I want to talk is sort of what this – might mean um, for the for a future conclave and for the College of Cardinals. Uh, sure. Well, I mean, Pell loomed large in my sort of sense of the church, which wasn't huge. I mean, I was, you know, I, I grew up Catholic. I was actively practiced the faith throughout my teenage years and college years and everything else, but I wasn't like plugged into ecclesiastical affairs or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And so culturally, Pell was probably the first cardinal of whom I was aware. And that, that was, I, I think, largely a function of I was living in the UK. I grew up there. And, you know, culturally, the UK is closer to Australia than it is to the United States. You know, I, the idea of, you know, um, sort of big uh, popular figures of bishops and stuff in the United States who, who perhaps have a, a big and deep cultural footprint um, just don't just don't make it over there. You know, I, I for example, we, we ran this morning, we ran an interview with Archbishop Chaput, and I frankly hadn't heard of him until I was about I was probably when I came over to grad studies was the first time I really encountered even him. though in the United States he's an extremely influential he's an extremely big deal right. everyone knows right. who he is and you know I just didn't because I wasn't just I just I wasn't culturally aware of American because you're from the Anglosphere and the kind of con- continent and these we're from the Anglosphere but you're from the sort of Commonwealth universe and these things exactly so I mean yeah. uh, Pell you know Pell would do things like Pell was you know, a man of the Commonwealth yeah, and Pell would – I mean he was educated in Britain and things like that. But also he would do things that were culturally relevant to where I lived. So for example, when Richard Dawkins, that obnoxious um, pseudo-intellectual populist atheist, was you know sort of having his high tide moment, you know, Pell would go on TV and debate with him and, and do things like that. So that's how I came to, to first know of him is he was that guy. I mean I didn't uh, – I didn't go to World Youth Day in Sydney because um, that was, if I'm not mistaken, in 2008 – I believe that's right. Yeah, and um, I, I had a lot on my plate in 2008. I was uh, I was living and working for a period of time in Africa, and also I was getting married. So um, I, I, I didn't it. make it. You I didn't, didn't have make time for these to... World Youth Days. You well, <laughs> some people uh, some people tried to persuade me very strongly to go to to Sydney for World Youth, and I said I, I really can't. So Nobody why not? ever so... tries to persuade me to go to World Youth Day. They're like, you're not going. Oh man, that's too bad. Anyway, we'll see you. No, no, no. I, I got. I, I had some people put the the real stronger. I said I am getting married within like a week of when people will be getting back from this. That's not what I'm doing. I have yeah. other things to to do. Um, but anyway, I nevertheless he was you know he was a big force in that. Like the, the when I think of the new evangelization as a as a force in the church, a culture not as you know as you've said before. There there were regrettably it turns out a lot of bishops who you know that was just a we're just saying the thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just a buzzword. But I mean for Pell it was not a 
a buzzword. Like he believed in the new evangelization. He believed in the re-evangelization of what you might call, you know, sort of the formerly Christian West. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, the secularized West. And and he took that very seriously. He was, you know, seriously encouraging of, of what it was at that point, I think, fashionable to call the new movements and things like that. You know, he had he, he was a he was the epitome for me of a JP two bishop. Mm-hmm. Um and and I you know that's that when I think of what is a what is a real JP two bishop you know how do they how do they swim flying quack I, I think of Cardinal Pell and and I think the other thing that I really liked about him was you know he had this reputation for being a sort of bruising culture warrior and you know all this stuff and I I wrote about this a little bit this morning like that was that was not what I took away from him what I took away from him was that he was incredibly cheerful in all of these encounters like you he would get how did that play out where did you see that manifested. Well, I mean, you could see it in all of his public encounters that when he would speak, when he'd be challenged and, you know, met with serious, like negative, deeply personal coverage and pushback. But, you know, calling him all the things that, you know, they, people tend to call bishops who are too outspoken in defense of the faith, you know, calling him a homophobe, calling him, you know, someone who, you know, a misogynist, all of these sorts of things. He would just sort of smile about it. He'd just be like, no, that's not at all what I think. That's not at all what the church teaches, but I'll I'll tell you again. You know, mm-hmm. whatever, you know, if you, I'll say it as many times as you want me to say it, that's fine. And, you know, not be flapped by all of that. And I, I think that was a really great example of sort of cheerful perseverance. And, you know, it's part of what I consider to be the new evangelization is you're going to encounter hostility if you if you go out to proclaim the gospel in a secularist setting. Um, but how you meet that hostility, I think, is is what defines in large part whether or not you're offering a Christian witness you know, you don't, a Christian doesn't go into the public square to give witness to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the love of God for all people, you know, with their fists up. That's, yeah, that's, that's right. That's, that's not right. how it works. That's right. So, yeah. so that was something I loved. I mean, also he was just, um, he would, he would do things like, you know, he would give quotes to newspapers and Catholic magazines and stuff about how, you know, you must always love your fellow man and you in Christian charity knows no bounds except if England are playing Australian cricket or something like that. You know, he had, <laughs> you know, he, he would do that. He'd go to cricket. He'd come to, you know, Britain and he'd go to cricket matches and stuff. Like he was, he was, which is, you know, for me, it was the equivalent of, you know, seeing a Cardinal at a baseball game, you know, it's, it, yeah. it's just cool. Yeah. Um, so that, that was sort of culturally how I was aware of him. I mean, the other way I was obviously aware of him is his work. And that I was going to say Vatican finances, if we want right. to go there, I, you know, I, yeah, I think we can talk about it for a minute, but then I want to sort of talk about what Pell meant in the College of Cardinals and where uh, and 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 sort of what the impact of his death might be uh, for the upcoming future of the church. Well, let's okay, well, let's talk about that because I mean, you know what you it's know like what? if I if I get started in Vatican. Suffice to say, there is no Vatican financial reform. There is no. That's I think trial. the most critical part. There is no Vatican financial reform apart from Cardinal Pell. I mean, yeah. Pope Francis put that guy in charge for a very particular reason. He picked him for a very particular reason, which was he was the guy they were all afraid of. Yeah. He was the guy who wasn't going to be bought off or sidelined or bullied or intimidated, and he wasn't. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And and even, you know, it seemed after he left uh, to go to Australia, I know people are wanting us to talk about, like, what well, was he set up on the track? I'm an Occam's Razor guy. I hear these theories about was Pell set up and these kinds of things, and I am an Occam's Razor guy. It is not the simple answer to the question. It is not even. It is not nearly the most straightforward answer to the question, so barring evidence to support it, uh, you know, conclusive evidence to support it. I'm not the sort of person who says that his Vatican finance work was connected to his legal are, troubles. Are there people in and around the Vatican, and particularly in and around the Vatican between sort of 2014 to 2017, who would have done anything to get Pell out? Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things I, I hear a lot is, well, what about all the money that was sent to Australia? And it's like, okay, well, first of all, there's two stories there. We chased um, that money hard. We, we chased that money hard. I chased that money a lot. I was up with a newborn baby over my shoulder at like yeah. three in the morning on a couple of nights on the phone uh-huh. to members of the Australian parliament yeah. and stuff That's like right. that. Like I chased that money hard. And yeah. the first thing was like the billions of whatever that, you know, or hundreds of millions that were supposedly sent there turned out to be an error on the part of Oztrack, which mm-hmm. is the Australian sort of, you know, financial watchdog. Like, oh, no, sorry, we, you know, we plugged in the wrong search algorithm and came up with you know 100x the actual amount yeah so that actually that money never actually happened that was just a mistake and it was extremely embarrassing for the australian government at the time um there was some tens of millions i think that couldn't be accounted for it went to a weird and wonderful tech firm mm-hmm. um and and again we chased that money hard we ran it down we got the receipts right. we got mm-hmm. what we in did. 
And, you know, the, the eventual excuse that was wrung out of Pillar Reader, Cardinal Angel Betchu was that, oh, we were buying web domains. And everyone and kind of rolled like, their eyes. Well, that's, that's a lot insane. of money for web domains. Of, yeah. yeah, and then we then we we ran that down, and it turns out no, actually the 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 numbers kind of added up, right? Because and they the were domain buying, names were fact, bought. Whole, by, they were buying whole dot whatevers. I, I don't know top what, level domain, top names. level domain things. Yeah, that's right. They're like dot Catholic dot, or whatever. Yeah. Um, um, and we chased that down, and the numbers added up, and in fact, the acquisition of top level domain names along those lines at that period of time was registered by the Holy See through the Secretary of State at that time, and it all kind of added up. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, again, am I saying that there aren't people in the Vatican or around the Vatican who would have absolutely set Pell up? Sure, there are lots of people who are perfectly motivated to do that. But I, if you have evidence of that, send it to me, please. I will be delighted to check it out. But I haven't seen any yet. Yeah. Okay. So this is the thing that I want to talk about because I think this is uh, not just who Pell was, but how, how Pell's absence will be felt in the breach. Longtime Vatican journalist um, Sandro Magister confirmed yesterday that the author of a, uh, a very controversial memo that was published was it last year? Yeah, I think it was last year. Yeah, a very controversial memo published last year um, that was a, a very very sharp criticism of the current pontificate uh, that that Cardinal Pell was the author of of, uh, of said memo, and uh, you know many people had there have been people who had been suspecting that and and that sort of thing, but. It was a very, very, very strong memo that was very critical of the uh, pontificate uh, on doctrinal issues, on governance and administration issues, on things like um, the uh, cleaning out of the um, John Paul II Institute uh, for Marriage and Family in Rome and then replacing and then sort of turning it into the John Paul II Institute rather than a theological institute, but a sort of sociology institute. Very critical of that, very critical of many, many things and urged other members of the College of Cardinals to be thinking of those things uh, in the time leading up to the conclave. Whether you agree with the memo or not, clearly a lot of cardinals did because Pell was a connector among members of the College of Cardinals. And we could see this in action, right? I mean, we saw him in Rome last week having dinner a few times on the street where we were having dinner and he was with groups of people, cardinals and bishops and others because of the funeral of Benedict Sixteenth. And with, I found very interesting sort of international groups. Pell, maybe this is the notion of, this is the kind of place Oceana plays as being sort of between many worlds. Um, but but there are other factors probably too, probably as personal sort of backslappy um, dynamism and charism and engagement with people and those sort of things. But many, many cardinals in the church looked to Pell and took their cues from Pell. And even if you disagree with the Deimos memo, which is very critical of the pontificate of, of Francis, the fact of the matter is many, many cardinals took their cues from Pell. You could see it. You could see it in the fact that he influenced members of the College of Cardinals, that he was often with them, that he was often engaging with them, that pe- that cardinals will say that they look to him uh, for advice and counsel, that many, many bishops from around the world have said that since his death. Pell was an influential figure, and Magister sort of um, put Pell's cards more directly on the table to say Pell was a very sharp critic of the Francis pontificate. Yeah, I, it seems that way. I mean, I, I don't know what is gained by saying Pell was the author of something he chose not to sign, even if he was. I mean... Yeah, in in the sense, I mean, I suppose it's of journalistic interest if you didn't know who it was. But I mean, if if you ran it in on your website and you knew who it was all along, and because Magister was the first one to publish it, right? We would never run it. We would never run an unsigned memo, no. and just say like, "This is being circulated among the college guards." We would never do that. It's not our way. It's a very Italian way of doing journalism. It's a very honestly. Italian way. It's a very Italian way. Ed is not a fan of leaving aside. Ed is not a fan of the Italian way of journalism, and neither am I. But I mean, you know, countries are different. I I don't tend to read a whole lot of Italian journalism, but I like Mod- Modester's sort of insights about. I do read a lot of Italian journalism um, because very often they're covering aspects of, for example, Vatican finances that I'm not, and you know. But the reason I don't like it is because I read a lot of it, and very often it's hard <laughs> to tell what they mean and what they're suggesting, and they write in this very bombastic, you know dramatic style and it's like i'm never sure what's rhetoric and what's you know an assertion of fact and yeah, i right. find that so it's not the way we roll by any stretch of the imagination but modster published this thing and then subsequently um uh revealed after the death of pell that pell was the author of it and what that makes clear what that confirms is that pell who is a very influential member of the college of cardinals was a sharp critic of uh, of the Francis pontificate, more sharp, I think, even than some of the cardinals who have been outspoken about their criticism. Um, and so we can assume that Pell was a sharp critic of 
the Francis pontificate in his conversations with cardinals from around the world, and that that might have influenced the conclave in one uh, in in a direction that would be a different direction than Francis is leading the church. So I think that the influ- that the death of Pell, honestly, I mean, one of the things that I think about the death of Pell is that it probably means that those who are looking, who, who would look for a figure who would be more theologically aligned with Benedict XVI and more sort of aligned on matters of governance and ecclesiastical culture and leadership and those things with Benedict XVI and Francis probably will be far less organized leading up to a conclave than they would have been uh, before the death of Pell because Pell was such, I think, a sort of um, hub figure for very many spokes of that cadre of cardinals. Yeah, I, I think that's probably right. I mean, you said it's partially a function of just where Oceania is, you know, uh, as if you're the Cardinal Archbishop of Sydney, as he was for a long time, you know, for example, the Cardinal, well, there isn't one now, but traditionally there's been a Cardinal Bishop of Hong Kong, you know, the mm-hmm. bishops of India better, you, you tend to, um, you know, you you know, for example, the Cardinal in Burma, <laughs> Cardinal Juan Bo. And, you know, things like that. And also you're plugged into the Anglosphere. You, you tend That's to right. know your American counterparts. You tend to know your Yeah, you're at British. the nexus of sort of, a, yeah. of sort of Asia, the West, and um, and um, uh, uh, even, even I think, you know, you would have probably relations. Well, with... I, and I don't want to be a I, – I don't want to poke at, and make make it sound like I'm just, you know, playing the, the Commonwealth card. But I think that is a thing too. Yeah. Like sport plays a, plays a role. Because sport um, is a part of culture and culture. Is- sport is a part of culture, but also the sort of, you know, who, what teams play who determines who you talk to and who you're culturally familiar with. So, for example, if you are a rugby playing nation, you know people in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, places like that. I mean, you know, in, in ways that you, you don't. I mean, you know, what's a cardinal from Australia going to talk to about, you know, for example, a cardinal from... South Africa. Well, they can talk about rugby. They can talk about cricket. They can talk about yeah. things like that. There's there's a common there's a common cultural language there that you know you don't have if you are, for example, the the cardinal of you know Bitterly Boeing, Idaho, or whatever. You know you don't you don't have that same cultural language. So I think he was, uh, as you say, the sort of uh, a hub figure in that way. And Hell himself would not have participated in the next conclave. Because no, he, he would not. He, he aged out last year. Yeah, um, that's right. But nevertheless, I think would have been, I, I really do think would have been someone who was influential on the many cardinals from many parts of the world who look to him for counsel and introducing them to each other and helping them to know and understand and trust each other, especially because as many people keep pointing out, there have been very few consistories in recent years, gatherings of cardinals in Rome. And so hubs become far more important because cardinals have just had fewer opportunities to sort of spend time with one another in the kind of meetings and coffee breaks in which people get to know each other. Exactly. That, and I think that is true that Pell would have played an outsized role in any future conclave um, because of everything we just said, but also especially because cardinals, I think, when they arrive in Rome for the next conclave, whenever it will be, and I personally don't think it'll be for a few years yet, um, don't know each other. There, there aren't the ordinary consistories that, you know, used to be happening twice a year when all the Cardinals would get together and they would know each other and they all this up. We haven't had that. Um, we had one in September this year, but that was the first one in like two and a half, three years. And there isn't another one in the book so far as I'm aware. So, you know, a lot of the Cardinals are going to arrive for the next conclave, whenever that is, and they are going to be total strangers. And that places a particular emphasis on, I mean, before the conclave goes into actual conclave, the whole college of Cardinals, buries the Pope who has died and has a series of sort of open, more or less open, not conclave, but, you know, gatherings and, you know, whole sessions of the College of Cardinals to talk and everything before the Cardinal electors go into, go into the Domus and the Sistine Chapel and get on with the business of the election. And I think that pre-conclave period, um, ahead of the next conclave, whenever that may be, is going to be incredibly important because that's going to be the moment where everyone's like, well, who is everybody? I don't know you. I've never met you. You know, who are you? What are you all about? You know, and there's going to be a lot of that. And I think the the people who have wide connections and a deep memory and have been around the block for a while, uh, they're going to play a very outsized role, even if they're not going to be in the room voting, because they're the ones that people are going to look to and say, well, I, I, I've known you for a couple of years. Who else do I need to know? Yeah. So absent Pell in, in that role, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I honestly don't know who sort of steps into that role among that set of cardinals. I, I think that's the question is Pell, I think, was such a central figure that it's hard to say that someone will sort of easily be looked to in the same way or have the same set of relationships or the same set of connections. And I think that does it probably solidifies. Well, it's not that there aren't 
people who have the same sets of connections or different but similar scope of connections um, or couldn't play that role. It's that, and this is the thing about Pell is he was dispositionally geared towards it. I mean, he's that he was a gregarious, larger than life guy. He talked to people. He'd go out to dinner. That's what he did. Um, I can think of people who who are about his age um, and have about his seniority and even stature in the College of Cardinals. And with you know, a lot of Cardinals will look to and say, "Well, what do you think?" But the question is, you know, do they have the character to to be? The sort of person who wants to say, oh, well, yes, you should talk to you and, you know, you should know this person. And, well, here's what I think about this. And I'm, I don't see anyone who fits that mold at all. No, to my way of thinking, that that's, that um, strengthens in, the, in the, con- the next conclave the importance of um, the Western European cardinals and the Italian cardinals. Italy still has the highest number of cardinals, but what it does not have any longer is a kind of majority all by itself. But there's still the Italian cardinals know each other. And the Western European cardinals, by virtue of being in closer proximity to each other, know each other, and probably will have a, a bit, have had a bit more engagement with one another during the Prague session of the Synod on Synodality than will the American um, cardinals, for example, who American and Canadian cardinals who are having the their Synod on Synodality continental session vis-a-vis virtual sessions and these kinds of things. So to my way of thinking, the death of Pell solidifies the sort of central influence of the European and Italian bloc of cardinals if they are unified in the next conclave, if they're unified among themselves about a direction or a candidate, I would think that is a much more likely to carry the day because even if many people sort of would have other sets of priorities or interests, they would be the ones most likely to be unified among themselves. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, conclaves like any other sort of live voting exercises, you know, people people respond to the room. Right. If they sense there's a, you know, there's a big push for a guy. They go, oh, okay. Yeah, sure. So, no, I think that's very likely. Yeah. God rest Cardinal Pell. We pray for the repose of his soul as we do uh, for all deceased leaders of the church. We certainly do. All right. Well, we have a little time left. J.D., would you like I, Would you like to do some trivia? What's it, What kind of trivia? Well, so I wrote a thing in my newsletter today that has captured people's imaginations in a way I hadn't quite anticipated. Um, I, I mentioned that when I was applying to university uh, on my personal statement, Amongst the many fictitious accomplishments and abilities that I claimed for myself, one of them was that I was a, a prize-winning competitive oyster sexer. So I, I have some oyster-themed trivia. If you've got nothing better to do on a Friday night. Sure. Yeah, let's do it. Oyster trivia. I like oysters. Do you? Yeah, sure. Why not? Oh, I, I, there's no reason why you shouldn't. I was just, you know. I, some people do, <laughs> I've never had an oyster. You've never had an oyster? I am allergic Oh, that's right. I forgot. You, you, you're one of those. Like, we can't. When Ed comes, uh, we have to. Like, we can't have any peanuts in our house. No, I'm not allergic. Peanuts, to, wait, whoa, 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 that's not. No, 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 no. None of that. Just shellfish. Yeah. No, it's true. No, he. Ed has. Ed's the sort of person who has very many allergies. Yeah, that's not true. That's A- not. Ask me about oysters, Edward. Okay. Um, well, first of all, JD. I mean, I. I've always wanted to try oysters. They look. They look good. They appeal to me. I would. The well, why haven't you? Oh, you're sh- you're allergic because I'm allergic to them. But... Still, could it be possibly be worth it? I don't know. I but I have I've told my wife that, you know, if ever I'm you know, if I'm clearly on the way out and it's last meal time. Get get me an oyster. I've said I want twelve I want twelve <laughs> oysters. No, you have not and a, I have Are you serious? Hundred percent. You can ask her the next time you speak to her to say what is it that I have instructed my last meal should be if I'm clearly on the way out. She will tell you I want a dozen oysters and the only drink that one should have with oysters, JD, a pint of what? Beer. No. Is this a question? Now? Yes, is this, this is a, a question. question. This is your first trivia question. What is it that you should? What is the thing you should be drinking with oysters, JD? Cy- no, cider with oysters seems weird, but you said pint. Pint is what's throwing me off. Yeah, you can get it in a pint. It comes in pints. Beer isn't the answer? Well, there's beer involved in it. There's beer involved. I I don't know too many things that have beer has, has in them. A beer, a beer and orange juice. Beer and orange Ooh, juice. That sounds vile. No, black velvet. What do you call cheating. that? What do you call beer and orange juice? That's not bad, actually. Beer and orange juice for a breakfast brunch. But what do you call it? A beer mosa. That's what. That's what we used to call it. A beer mosa. Okay. Well, maybe I, I no black velvet is what I was thinking of. What is that? I don't know what that is. Black velvet is fifty fifty Guinness and champagne. Oh, okay. Okay, JD. I I have, as you know, claimed to be a a competitive and prize winning oyster sexer. Why Why do you think oyster sexing is so hard? I don't. I don't even. I don't know. 
I, I don't know. You tell me. Because oysters actually change sex over the course of their life. They oh, will, they oysters will, change sex over yeah, the course of their they life. They will spontaneously change from male to female depending on the environment they're in. Um, and it is, in fact, just in case anyone didn't realize, like, oyster sexing is a joke. Like, there is no such thing as competitive oyster. You can't tell. It's not possible. And it doesn't matter. No one cares. Well, I think there actually is like I think if you're cultivating oysters, you have to oh, regularly boys and girls. You yeah. you regularly have to mix the pots because otherwise if you get a critical mass of like rival male oysters in a in a contained space pot, they'll actually poison each other and all of the other oysters. So you do have to like keep spreading them out and mixing them up and stuff like that. But there's no way of telling an oyster, if an oyster's male or female from the outside. You have to open it. If you open it, you kill it. So I mean it's like the idea that you <laughs> there's such things as competitive oyster sexing is itself a joke. Um but yes, that is why it's so difficult, JD, is because they they change. They are they are, um do you know um why oysters are considered an aphrodisiac? <laughs> uh <laughs> this is an uncomfortable question. No, it isn't. Because it's a perfectly reasonable question. Do you know why they're considered an aphrodisiac? No. Really? No seem no seems like the safest answer right now. Well, you can give me the no, right answer. No, I don't. It's Greek mythology, JD. Okay, Dionysus. They were the favorite no, food of Dionysus. No, um, the goddess Aphrodite, in the according to Greek mythology, was oh yes, hence right. Aphrodisiac. No, it was born out of an, a giant oyster roast. Born in out of, oh yeah, you always see and her there. From the, the oyster, she gave birth you to see Cupid, her there, the shell and uh, there. Mm-hmm. so that is yeah. why Aphrodite is always presented as standing on an oyster because yeah, she, Aphrodite on a half shell. You always see it in that exactly. Whatever. So the, that is hence the hence the term Aphrodisiac is because it is the 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 so-called origin of Aphrodite. Um, oh, well. Do you know what Aristotle got wrong about oysters? <laughs> this is the weirdest trivia game I've ever played I in my life. I just assumed you had a good classical education. I'm, I'm only asking you about <laughs> Greek mythology, I Aristotle. I went to public school, and then I went... Uh, <laughs> I went to well, public school, too, my... and I learned about black velvet and Greek no, mythology. We and, to, you know? I'm very proud of my uh, my alma mater. But we, we went to different kinds of public time. school. We spent uh, Aristotle thought that uh, Aristotle. My guess, my guess would be that Aristotle thought that oysters um, spontaneously generated. You, that they just a hundred percent correct. Well done. That is yeah, exactly Aristotle right. Aristotle thought that about everything. But my guess is, in fact, I don't think oysters can move. I don't think oysters can move. I don't know anything about this actually. But I don't think oysters can move. My guess is that the way that oysters make baby oysters is that the male oyster sends out a cloud of oyster stuff and the musk. female oyster receives the cloud and then makes baby oysters. That would be my guess. Uh, yeah, and I think I, I could be wrong here, but I think basically the the little baby oysters end up um, taking the root in the sand and then come growing up from that. And so you're entirely correct. Aristotle mistakenly thought that oysters were proof of spontaneous generation, that they just sort of sprung up from the sand, um, you know, I see. of their own. Um, Aristotle was, of course, an idiot. Um, yeah. He thought a lot of silly things. Um, okay, so let's see. What else can I ask you about oysters? Um, oh, there's more. There are more. There are more questions about oysters. There's more to. Are you know not about enjoying oysters. our little game? No, this. Is I'm great. having oyster a great Bay. time. I thought you were going to ask me, baby, about Oyster Bay, the old uh, old Roosevelt's there and whatnot. Uh, oyster Bay is a very nice white wine. That um, mm-hmm. yeah, that's where the Roosevelts are from. Maybe is it so? I didn't know that. Okay, could you could you complete for me complete for me, please? Um, I'm going to give you a verse of poetry, and I would like you to give me the next verse. Okay. All right. I know that you like poetry, fun. so you should be all so right. So you'll just read a you'll just read a line, and then I'll pick up sort of the rhyme and meter, and then make my own line. No, no, no. You will give me the correct following verse because okay. this is famous poetry, and I assume you have it to heart. Yeah. Okay. The, the walrus and the carpenter walked on a mile or so, and then they rested on a rock conveniently low, and all the little oysters stood and waited in a row. We, they said, they. The walrus and the carpenter were in Alice in Wonderland. Do you really not know the walrus and the carpenter? The time has come, the walrus said, to talk of many things, of shoes and ships and sailing racks, of cabbages and kings, and why the sea is boiling hot and weather pigs have wings. What do they teach you in school? I don't understand. You don't know what black velvet is. You're not up on your Greek mythology. You can't recite the walrus and the carpenter from heart. (laughs) I mean, good grief. I do. I do. I was almost thrown out of a uh, talking about. I do clubs know not how to James. dangle. I, I do know how not to dangle modifiers and participles. So I'm just... there's that. I um no. I was almost talking of clubs in London and St James. I was once almost thrown out of a club 
um, mm-hmm. for but you had to have Rachel come and get you. I think I've heard this. No, story. no, that I had to be carried out of a club for that. That that was a different story altogether. No, this was when I was at lunch. It was a very long lunch, and a friend of mine and I um, got into a poetry reciting competition across the table, being overserved, and we were at the club table, and it ended with one of us uh, standing up and reciting from memory the whole of the Walrus and the Carpenter. And people were pretty pleased. And then I stood up on the table and um, not on the table in my chair and, and started declaiming the owl and the pussycat because Lewis, mm. the obvious answer to Lewis Carroll is Edmund Lear. Mm-hmm. Um, and at which point the major D came over and you know was very agitated and was tugging at my sleeve. Sir, sir, you, you mustn't stand on the furniture while you recite poetry. Sir, sir. Oh, that's right. I, that's right. I remember that. So, yeah. I mean, you know, you can have all sorts of fun with black velvet and poetry. It's, you know, it's there to be done. Um, all right. Last question, Jamie. All right. Last question here. What's the, what's the biggest oyster ever found? Length. How long was the biggest oyster ever found? Yeah. What's the Guinness record holder? Give me a clue. Like, how, give me a I'll context. give you, like I, how, I will accept answers to the nearest inch. To the nearest inch, huh? Mm-hmm. 14? Yeah, spot on. Wow. <laughs> 13.97. Yeah, it was a Pacific oyster. It's, it, uh, it was discovered in Denmark in 2013, <laughs> if, I, if I remember correctly. Oh, so this you have memorized. Largest like oyster in the world. That just, that this is really important right stuff. This your is head. really important stuff. Aristotle, yeah. Aphrodite, Lewis Carroll. Nope, nope, nope. But right. uh, largest oyster in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I can give you the species. This podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, JD Flynn, joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. We'll be back next week to talk about, to have, rather, a great Catholic conversation. Thank you.